Welcome to Just Think, the podcast. The podcast where we don't want to tell you what to think. We just want to encourage you to do it. We are three friends that came from across the political spectrum who were tired of partisan politics and were alarmed at what we saw happening in our country, including the growing political divide. But we found as we challenged ourselves to recognize our own biases, to put them aside, we were absolutely united in our pursuit for the truth. And that's why we started this podcast to share the conversations we were having around that pursuit and to invite you into our conversation. To encourage you to feel free to ask questions. Search for the answers yourself to say what you think. That's right, because as we like to say, diversity of thought, ideas, and beliefs are welcome here. Asshats are not. (laughs) (laughs) All are welcome as long as you just think. It's Holly and Amy and Kristen, and we're joined today by a guest all three of us have been so excited to chat with. He has been a pediatrician. He's now retired, but he's a pediatrician that I have been aware of. I've never gotten to meet him until now, but I've been aware of for several years. We have several connections, crazy connections back to my husband's family, and then my sister's the one who said, Holly, you need to look into Dr. Bose Ravenel. He was a pediatrician out of Winston-Salem for a very, very long time, which Winston-Salem, if I'm in Raleigh, it's about two hours west of here. Well, I was at Greensboro with my dad. Right. Then in High Point, actually, for 31 years. Okay. In practice, I was in Winston in the integrative last six and a half years. That's right. That's when you, Dr. Wiggy Saunders, we've talked with him before. You worked with Dr. Wiggy in his integrated practice, right? Right. Well, you are a, you, you have a lot of experience, Dr. Ravenel. And so what we like to do is bring on guests who are experts in their field. We're living in a crazy time where historically the experts in their field, if they are not towing the, I hate to use the word narrative line, but that's kind of where we're at, then they're being discredited or dismissed. And what we feel we can do on this podcast is continue to bring voices of experienced and credentialed experts into our conversations to give people more information to take a look at, perhaps information that they don't have readily available or have never heard before. Um, But I do want people to just know that you, your, your background is quite extensive in that while you were board certified fellow of the American Academy of Pediatrics and you practiced for 31 years in private practice, you also had 11 years of academics as an associate clinical professor of pediatrics at the UNC School of Medicine Pediatric Department here in North Carolina, serving on the Community Pediatric Residency Training Program in Greensboro, and then over six years in pediatric integrative medicine when you went and worked with Dr. Wiggy in Winston-Salem and 2,600 hours studying COVID-19 following your retirement on March 16th, 2020. So it sounds like you took on a job after you retired and that was studying COVID. Is that about right? That's exactly right. Well, I can't wait. We're going to sit at your feet for this next hour and we're going to learn from you and what you've learned. And I really want to start back with, I really want to take us all the way back to March when you retired. When COVID first came on the scene, 
What were your thoughts about it? You know, instant, what were your immediate thoughts around COVID? Well, the very first ones were obviously, like everybody, complete puzzlement and uh, curiosity, whatever. And then um, within a few months, quite honestly, um, the, every, most of most everything that we had as physicians been told and believed in traditional perspectives on infectious disease, uh, they seemed to be, uh, all of a sudden things were just, things were being changed. And I just, I, I, to be honest with you, I kind of smelled a rat. I thought something's, something is going on here. There's some agenda. I don't know what's going on, but something strange going on here. And then over four or five, six months, it became increasingly obvious to those of us who've been around long enough to have <clears throat> um, been used to what I call analytical thinking. Uh, the, I, I practiced medicine in the field of medicine from 1970 right up until 2019, uh, 2000, uh, when I retired, uh, 2020. And in the 70s and 80s, uh, the practice of medicine was much more then for mainstream pediatricians and internal medicine, whatever, like almost like integrated medicine, where we had to really think through things and figure things out. There weren't all these elaborate protocols and you could dialogue and question and try things and try off-label drugs and on and on and on. And uh, all of a sudden, uh, things got more and more regimented and after I spent my 11 years in academic pediatrics with UNC Chapel Hill, part of pediatrics, I ended up leaving academic medicine mainly in order, by the time I had done those 11 years, I encountered the um, increasing, even back in the 80s, the um, academic pressures to conform to whatever the consensus was. Mm -hmm. And so uh, um, open dialogue, questioning, uh, questions were really um, kind of centered, um, centered out among colleagues. Was this so I, yeah, I went back into private practice in order to have academic freedom. Um, so, That's unreal. So, this was in the 80s, Dr. Robin. Did you say you started yeah. noticing that in the 80s? Yeah, I, I left academia in 1988 and went back into private practice because of that reason. So anyway, um, Going back to the pandemic, um, quickly it became apparent that a lot of narratives that were traditional and never questioned before were just rejected. Among, for example, the, the, any viral infection in history, one of the keys was to find or repurpose old drugs or find drugs that aren't around. They didn't have time to develop a new drug, something that's killing people all over the world. And so uh, it was... Uh, Never before in history had any viral infection for which there was any kind of treatment available. Would anybody ever even talk about, well, don't treat, stay home. Uh, only go to the hospital if you can't breathe and all that. So that, that, that started in the very beginning. Mm -hmm. And then just one thing after another, uh, like wearing masks to, uh, after decades and, and years, Dr. Fauci famously said in videos, up to about 2019, uh, face masks worn by well people don't prevent viral transmission. It's been known for decades. All of a sudden, they're trying to reverse the narrative. So you got to wear a mask. And uh, so it turns out, I did a pot, I did a uh, PowerPoint that I sent y'all, mm -hmm. one I developed about a year ago, 
And that one really was, it took about seven or eight of the main narratives that were those advanced by the CDC and the mainstream medical world about COVID and all. And I entertained then and provided, I thought, compelling information to support the idea that most of these narratives were really not, not validated. They were actually false uh, in the name of various agendas and ideas that were questioning traditional things. And then more recently, I did a talk in uh, Statesville to a bunch of mama bears I call who are thinking and just stopping and analyzing, thinking analytically. And I have found that you mama bears and papa bears that I worked with for six years in the integrative world are extraordinary. You're my heroes. You changed my life collectively, literally. I mean that sincerely because you taught me how to, to, to listen, to think, to be challenged, to respond. I learned more from you collectively than I learned in 20 years before. By uh. um, so anyway, I revised that PowerPoint and I didn't have to change anything. Everything that I had concluded a year ago turned out there's just a lot more evidence proving that it's true. That's wow. That's so we we uh, girls say we're always going to do another show called "I Told You So" because when we started <laughs> when we started this podcast uh, last June, you know, we had some evidence and a lot of suspicion. Now we have no suspicion and so much more evidence and proof that we weren't crazy, right? But yeah. but voices like ours were being silenced <clears throat> and attacked. And we were being, you know, what they try to do, Amy says it all the time, if they can't attack the information, they attack you personally, right? And so we've seen that play out, but I do think it's interesting, and we're going to talk about this later, that you made the point that this was not new. The thing that there were some things that were new about COVID, right? But what wasn't new was that there has been this pushback against anyone who goes against the common commonly held beliefs of the medical community. Is that about right? Correct. So now it's almost escalated. But one of the things you said was different is that previously you've been able to use off-label drugs to treat any kind of virus or disease because the goal is to get people well. For the first time, you were not allowed to or doctors were not allowed to prescribe certain drugs that were off-label and cheap that there was evidence, even though they tried to deny it, there was yeah. evidence that these things were working. And we've, yeah. we've had a lot of doctors talk about hydrochloroquine and ivermectin, but what's your two cents on those drugs? <laughs> yeah, well, the, the best response to that, I'll, I'll, let me find my two slides that were in the uh, um, PowerPoint. The first one is, um, you can see that. Yes. I'm going to read it. Studies for hydroxychloroquine and COVID-19. This is a summary from a source called hcqmeta.com. This is data, literature. 306 studies from 4,900 scientists, 423,654 patients in 50 countries. Statistically significant improvement for mortality, hospitalization, recovery, cases, and viral clearance. There's a graph. All the studies were in the positive category. Uh, and it, uh, every, every bar graph is on the effective side of treatment. And uh, then the one for ivermectin, quote, horse pills, if you will. <laughs> and by the way, uh, 
my wife and I both experienced, I call it omicold, uh, positive <laughs> test. And within 36 hours of taking ivermectin, um, we were feeling back to par. Um, and no side effects except... <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's a little thing. It's just, hey, I took it too. I took it too. The girls took it. They got. We all did. Yeah. We all did. We've all yeah. taken it. We're all here. None of us are neighing on a regular basis. Maybe everybody. Right. So, <laughs> so, from the source, IVMmetal.com, IvermectinMetal.com, summary of studies for Ivermectin. 76 studies from 718 scientists. 57,647 patients in 26 countries. Statistically significant improvement for mortality, ventilation, ICU, hospitalization, recovery, cases, and viral clearance. 83, 66, 39% improvement for prevention. 57 improvement in 32 random controlled trials. 57% lower mortality from 37 studies. And yet we still have the audacity of some people even today to have the ball, the, the absolute goal to say there are no studies that show it. That's absolutely baloney. It's baloney. There they are. They don't, they don't want to look at them. They will not look at them. I was and I was trying to look it up. Dr. Corey, Pierre Corey, yeah. you know, speaks out a lot about this and, you know, on the FLCCC, you know, the front layer, sure. what is it, Frontline COVID Care Coalition. But um, he posted the other day, and it got censored, um, about a study from Itajai. And he actually talked about it at the roundtable panel discussion in D.C. Um, and talked about it. And he actually came back saying that it's, I, I swear it was 100% positivity, 100% improvement. And this was like the largest scaled study. It was like tens of thousands. Like it could have been either 20 yeah. or 40,000. Please don't mark my words. I don't know. Do you remember? Do you know that? I don't know. But nobody listens. Yet they still won't approve that. But they're approving other meds that have. Well, that that goes to the point here. Mm -hmm. I, I want to mention two more sources, and then we'll come back to the point about how can somebody ha have a pretty good out way of determining with two polar contrasting narratives about the same subject, about which is a lot of information. How do you get a a pretty good idea which one is more likely to be true and which one's more likely to be false. If you look at what are the consequences for the individuals who are articulating each point of view, that is, is there a vested interest on one side and or are there, on the other hand, penalties and sacrifices those who articulate a view are made to pay. And in the case of COVID, uh, before I get to that point, this is the book by George Fareed and Brian Tyson in California, who happen to be close friends of a board member of an organization of which I'm a medical advisor called North Carolina Physicians for Freedom. Uh, but these two doctors between them, when able to treat early within the first three to five days of symptoms, over 7,000 patients treated for COVID, sick with COVID, zero deaths, six, I think, or eight hospitalizations from the treatment that is banned by hospitals. And then if, if that's not impressing somebody, then we have the slide where myfreedoctor.com, an alternative whole health system has been set up because of the institutional resistance to curing disease 
and myfree.com volunteer free telehealth telehealth consultations online. That group using Dr. <laughs> Peter McCullough's early treatment um, approach have uh, collectively treated over um, 150,000 patients with 99.99% survival. So people who keep saying these treatments are A, dangerous and or ineffective or don't work or so forth, so on. There's some combination of the following with no exceptions. The individual saying that is completely uninformed. A polite term that I grant for people and give them charity. If they're not uninformed, if they're not uninformed, then they're complicit in the greatest deception in the history of medicine and responsible. They're, they're, if, if they're informed and keep saying that, then they are in essence complicit in being uh, playing a role in the unnecessary death of hundreds of thousands of people. Mm. Uh, so the, true. Bingo. And the people who are uh, advancing the narratives that these treatments are ineffective and should not be used are people who are defending the protocols and things which for which there are financial incentives beyond anybody's comprehension. Think of the market for these expensive new drugs, which they're insisting to use instead of the proven old safe drugs. Um, and the, 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 there's another article from the American, the Association of American Physicians and Surgeons, AAPS, on the subject of hospital protocols for mm -hmm. uh, inpatient treatment of COVID. And uh, Dr. Elizabeth Villette and Dr. Uh, McCullough and the AAPS group have come up together with eight or nine different bonuses which are paid out by the government and by the agencies for diagnosing, treating COVID with certain prescribed things, including a drug called Indesivir, which used late, provides no benefit and is a very toxic drug. And they're insisting on using those treatments, even though the mortality rate among patients treated in hospitals with this kind of approach is around 50%. And they won't allow patients to access potential life-saving treatment. So um, the point is that, that on the one side, there's incentives. This article actually documents an estimated about $100,000 in the complete total of all the eight or nine different bonus incentives available for treating and diagnosing COVID in hospital patients. It's about $100,000 a patient that the hospital gets extra when they follow the protocols. So one side is one, does one side have a vested interest? What are the vested interests of people who are sacrificing their careers, who are not making, they're not only not making money, they're losing their career, losing their job, and they're walking out of the job and have no income, have to quit a whole nother um, way to make a living. So the, you have two groups, one has unheard of financial incentives, the other group, is sacrificing their careers because of something they believe so strongly in to treat people and make them help get better. That's a heck of a price for misinformation, right? Quote, misinformation. In other words, all yeah. these people accused of misinformation have so everything to lose and are putting it all on the line. 
Exactly. For that. And yet the we know what the pharmaceutical companies are making. CNN itself reported when the vaccines came out, it made it created nine new billionaires. Nine yeah. new billionaires. I mean, start doing the math. And right. not just that, you look at remdesivir, which we know was three thousand dollars a dose, I'm almost sure, right? Whereas ivermectin was pennies to create. Yeah. Um, so you, you've got this money running towards these new drugs. These, which we have suspicions about remdesivir because it's created by Gilead Science, and we we believe Fauci has some connections with Gilead, and that's what he suggested that they put on that the uh, hospital protocols. And then then you have the hospitals getting paid for these things. So the hospitals getting paid for the protocols, the pharmaceuticals companies obviously getting paid, all the people invested, which we know a lot of the government, a lot of our politicians are invested in these companies and have very strong ties to these companies. You can find all this for yourself when you research it. Right. You're following a money trail. It's following to this, the mainstream narrative. Is that right? Yes. That? yes. yes. And the and doctor, uh, the remdesivir was actually tried with the Ebola uh, experience back a few years ago. And in, the, in, in using it for Ebola, there was a 50% mortality rate from using the drug on the patients, renal failure mm -hmm. and all that. Uh, in the face of that, then on the, uh, the pandemic comes with COVID, and the reports were that Dr. Fauci is the person who pretty much insisted on including remdesivir in the hospital protocol, and widespread experience now suggested, A, it does no good whatsoever, used late in the hospital, which is the only way that you use it, and B, there's a significant mortality of uh, fatal renal compromise in patients who receive a drug. Well, and also, when has it ever been vilified for doctors saving lives? Would you not think that doctors who have saved 7,000 people would be like celebrated and they would be talking about it all over the place and all the physicians will be talking saying, what are you using? Oh my gosh, is this working? But no, they're like, ooh, don't say anything. Ooh, yeah. don't, don't tell anybody. He's a, he's a quack. He's a quack. I mean, right. like, I, I, I just, it, it blows my mind. And when we talk about remdesivir, you know, only being, you know, it's only only effective if we even, that's, I've got quotation marks with it, with anything effective and remdesivir in the same sentence anyway, but by the time somebody goes to the hospital, because what the recommendations are is to go home and come back when you can't breathe or, you know, like, so it's already late. You're already in this cytokine storm or past that. So even if you get on remdesivir right there, you're too late, but yet that is still their policy. That is still their protocol. I mean, they don't give monoclonal antibodies to people who go in that past five days. So why would you do the same thing for remdesivir? If you know the timing when it's better and when it's not, but then you're intentionally giving it at the wrong time. I mean, that's, it, it's horrible. It's yeah. beyond horrible. Well, so the, again, the other thing that people uh, need this to do, uh, and I'm, I really mean this sincerely, that anybody who ends up watching this podcast or later on, whatever, do not take my word for any of this. Look it up, search it. Do like these mama bears do. Uh, <laughs> the evidence is there. Uh, Dr. Fauci famously uh, continually, whenever he announces the latest uh, version of what he's, he's what he says today, famously tomorrow, he hems and hauls and backtracks and flip-flops like a fish on the beach. But uh, he never refers to a study. There's never a study mentioned. It's all, well, the science shows blah, blah, blah. 
Yep. Yeah. Incite the science. There isn't any science. Um, you know, I mean, how have they gotten away with this for this for this long? It's crazy. Uh, by, by everybody being locked up on the side who have the uh, agendas to implement. And the, the, all these things, uh, the masks that don't work, there are hundreds of studies. I, we can talk about that more in a few minutes. There are hundreds. I've got 13 sources I found that collectively add up to hundreds of sources and analyze and studies on data about masks. And they absolutely do virtually nothing to slow the spread a viral infection from well people to other people. It's been known for decades, nothing new under the sun. And yet uh, the narrative keeps going and going. Um, so the, the evidence is simply not there. And about a year ago, someone challenged the North Carolina governor's office to produce any papers that supported data research to support, to justify the mass mandates. At the time, Dr. Mandy Cohen was the person who was in charge of responding. So on behalf of Governor Cooper, she produced 22 papers, supposedly putatively to support the mask mandate. The John Locke Foundation spent quite a number of hours and analyzed all 22 papers and published an analysis of the 22 papers. And guess how many papers showed anything to support masks? None, not one. So the governor's 22 studies to justify his mass mandates shows they don't justify. And yet- And yet they still get away with it. That's just what's so exactly. bizarre. And, so then bizarre. When, and then the, the way they deal with it, they ignore all, all evidence to the contrary, literally ignore it, act as though it didn't exist. And then um, when people like myself or you or anybody or Dr. McCullough, uh, the world's most uh, expert COVID treating and academic position in the world in this field, anything they put up that questions anything in the narrative, take them down. That is an action, not of scientists, but of uh, autocrats, dictocrats. It's, uh, it's, a, it's a propaganda, massive propaganda operation. So the mask wearing, all the mandates in the mask wearing have nothing to do whatsoever protecting people. They have everything to do with um, basically it's it's control and mind conditioning, um, trying to maintain a, an illusion about danger to justify uh, continuing futile and harmful mandates. Yeah. In fact, most of the mandates for masks are uh, nothing to support them whatsoever. There's a lot of evidence that they're becoming more and more devastating for children. That's I mean everybody knows that now. Yes. Um, and then the the um, shutdowns and all that were going to flatten the curve for two weeks. It's going to flatten the world for two years now. Uh, and the mandates, the shutdowns and all, have uh, killed more people than uh, COVID has, uh, according to the best estimates across the world. Um, closing schools, churches, closing schools is the worst thing you can do. Um, children rarely transmit COVID outside the home, uh, in schools. Um, it just goes on and on. And Johns Hopkins came out and, and said that the lockdowns have been detrimental to children. They've, yeah. these, these are very reputable medical institutes that have said, we got to stop. We've got to stop the lockdowns. The masking of children yeah. is a bad idea. And it, we know that this is so crazy. This went viral this last week. 
somebody from Wake County where I live, this went viral across the country, but, but one of the school board folks, I can't remember his name, was saying, well, we just are conditioning the children to get used to wearing masks because- And they are, that's exactly what they're doing. I mean, he said it out loud and I'm like, you, I can't believe any part of your brain. I can't imagine how indoctrinated you have to be, how foolish you have to be, how sold out to the agenda you have to be to say that out loud and think that the rest of us are just going to go, uh-huh, okay. I mean- Well, I've, I've said it like a million times too on, on previous podcasts is just I, the mental health of our children going forward and what we've done and the long-term ramifications of what this is going to do, especially to the teenagers, growing this next generation that's going to come up. I mean, we always want the, the next generation to be the next group of leaders and innovators and all this thing. And we're going to have a depressed, suicidal. I mean, this is what terrifies me more than anything is the long-term mental health ramifications of this. Well, and, and the fear, because all that they are, they are, they have, they are scared to death. The, the kids who are like, they're scared to death to take the mask off because their their parents have scared them into like they're either going to get sick or it's going to be their fault for spreading something to somebody and then on top of that if another kid doesn't have a mask and i say this because this is actually happening at schools here elementary schools which is just so pitiful they are yelling and crying not just getting mad but they are crying because the masked kid is scared of the unmasked kid yeah I mean, this is absolute insanity and it's created such division. And it's, you know, here we are living in a world where they're talking about d diversity and inclusion and the same people screaming for that are the ones who want to condemn you and isolate you for not wearing a mask and not being vaccinated. The hypocrisy right. knows zero bounds. It's, right. un it's unimaginable that we are yeah. sitting here having this conversation because people are actually doing this yeah. and getting away with it. It's crazy to me. Well, and the fact that they're still doing it. Yes, still. I want to ask from your perspective as a you know former pediatrician, like how can we bring our kids back? How can we, how can we save this next generation? Like what can we do? I mean, you know, for us personally, we have not let our kids participate in this. We pulled them out of school. We will never, ever um, let them feel like this is normal life. Um, we refuse. So our kids are, remain unscathed from this, but yes. many kids have not. So what can we do as parents, like to just help them to help save this next generation from your perspective? I think the only real answer long-term is a combination of all the above consisting of more and more people have to think, just think, process. <laughs> And then have the courage to act and to say, no, I will not have my child wear a mask. There is zero evidence that it helps. Tons of evidence is harmful. And the idea of a child wearing a mask reveals the individual has never had a child or uh, has never really paid attention to what happened when they put one on a child. A child is not, cannot, never has, never will wear a mask properly. Even if they worked, which they don't to begin with, they can wear them all day long. It makes no difference. Zero. Absolutely no. none. No. They're so wiping they their butt and then putting their hand on their mask. And then, exactly. I mean, seriously, like, you know exactly. what they do? My son would come and his, like, his, his whole mask would be saturated because he sucked on it. Like, yeah. he was sucking on it. And I'm like, that is worse. You know, moisture yeah. is going to make it even worse. And when you have something on your face, you're going to touch your face more. 
Yeah. So just think about it. I mean, it's encouraging well, more that, And like, I think a lot of parents are like, well, they're fine. It doesn't bother them. They, they, they don't complain. They're fine. You know, whatever. It doesn't, it's not, big, ask the kids. not a big deal. We don't know how big of a deal it is, you know, long-term. And also oh, are, of course, kids yeah. are going to do whatever the adults say. Mm-hmm. There are studies published now, many studies published by child psychiatrists and others, just devastating psychological harm being done to children. And learning IQ has gone down. Mm-hmm. It just, uh, it's, 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 uh, it's almost unimaginable. Um, and I want to uh, shift over a little bit to discuss the area of, of the question a lot of parents have about getting the, uh, one of these uh, COVID vaccines for the child. I, I, first of all, I, uh, I'm going to say a lot of things about it, but I want to do it in the context of providing information for people to make their own decision. But I will say that as a pediatrician, generally speaking, that the idea of using investigational, and by the way, in the United States of America today, there are no FDA-approved available COVID vaccines. There are two FDA-approved vaccines, but neither is available in the United States. The approval of these to one named Comirnaty in England, and the other one most recently named Spike whatever, something or other, uh, it's, it's a classic bait and switch to, to allow the drug companies to, to give the illusion that they're now recommending FDA-approved vaccines. They're not. It's a false statement. The two vaccines that have been approved FDA, so all the vaccines currently being used in children are investigational, meaning by definition, they have not had sufficient time and data to assess their safety and and, uh, efficacy. Having said that, a child who gets COVID infection, this is even before the current Omicron variety, which is less lethal and milder. But even just in general, the the survival percentage for children for COVID-19 has been from FDA figures uh, CDC figures, I should say, 99.997%. And that's with no early treatment. Early treatment in the model that we're talking about, increasingly available all around the country now through alternative health sources, will reduce the mortality rate and hospitalization rate by an average of 85% from McCullough's research in many, many, many studies and uses, 99 to 100%. Dr. Freed and Tyson had treated over 7,000 patients, early treatment, no deaths. Uh, the, uh, the other group that I showed you a few minutes ago, over 100, and, uh, where, where was it? Um, I think it was 700,000 patients. Um, so, so there's no real need for these vaccines in children. Uh, but number two, even if, uh, if you decide, that, well, what is the risk of taking it? We don't know. That's the only honest answer. But what we do know is that the the VAER system, Vaccine Adverse Event Recording System, which is known to be a, uh, it's a a passive system, meaning it requires somebody to report it. It's not mandatory reporting, or it is, but people don't do it. Um, The process of reporting a VAER event, a vaccine-associated reaction, is onerous and takes about 30 minutes. And the process is one where hospital whistleblowers have reported, nurses have said that they try to do it for their hospital. 
reporting adverse event for the hospital. And the process was so hard that you get 25 minutes into it, have to leave to go see a patient. If you stop the process and start over, you start back all over again. Oh, and so wow. it's underreported. The Harper Pilgrim study about uh, 10 years ago, they actually looked at data on what percent of actual events from uh, vaccines are ever reported to begin with. They came up with less than 1%. Uh, some surveys have suggested that in the case of more severe reactions, it may be that uh, that only 90% are not reported. In other words, it may be, uh, instead of less than 1% report, it may be 10%. But the point is, nobody would argue that the the VAERS the numbers are vastly underreported. Number two, the number of deaths following administration or receipt of the COVID vaccine in the United States has reached over 9,700 in one year from COVID vaccines. That is a, a CDC figure. The CDC has acknowledged that number, over 9,000 in one year. That exceeds the grand total of all deaths following all vaccines preceding 10 years. Dr. McCullough has pointed out that in previous vac new vaccine trials, uh, for example, swine flu, when there were as many as 50 deaths, what happened? They pulled the program completely, shut it down. Now they've got 9,975 in one year in a system that underreports, and they're still going strong, saying they're, quote, safe and effective. They're ignoring the very red, red flag signals they had set up to um, indicate. And, and not only... There, they're mandating too, right? Like there's yeah. mandates over these things. So it's not just ignoring, there's people going yeah. so far as to mandate. Things. Yes. And there's a, an author named uh, Kostoff in a journal called Toxicology, where they reported the numbers. This is data. Again, it's not just opinion, it's data. And they estimated that the risk of a adult over 65 dying following getting a COVID vaccine is five times greater than it is for them dying from COVID. In the case of children whose risk of dying is a fraction of that age group, the risk of dying from a vaccine is exponentially greater than the risk of dying from COVID for a child. So uh, in my view, there is no rational, uh, there's no logical or rational or scientific evidence whatsoever that anyone's ever pointed out that I have seen that makes the idea of giving any child a COVID vaccine make any sense whatsoever. And uh, Dr. McCullough and others completely agree with that assessment. That's right. And it, it, that, that's something I do want to ask you about too. Even when it went through the CDC, Walensky's own, um, Walensky being the head of the CDC for our listeners, her own committee that voted on whether or not these should be given to children. If I'm not mistaken, was it not 13 to one or 12 to one against? Yes. Saying, and yet she went forward with it anyway. That's correct. That should tell, something is very wrong when your own Just committee think. of experts- Just says, think. Just think. Okay, yeah, here's, here's my thing, okay? There's two things. Number one, the VAERS system. Um, 
the very people who created it and it's the only system we have, they're the ones that are skeptical of it or say, oh, that's not accurate. And it's not accurate reporting. It's just passive. You go over there. There may be people putting something out there, but that's not our job to check. And what I keep saying is I'm like 9,975 deaths. You think those are all coincidental? I mean, and we all know we are not saying that it's causation, that it proves causation, but don't you think it at least makes people just think to invest well, in are, all of them and are, connect there, there is some There is some research on that. And Dr. Jessica Rose and Dr. Mm -hmm. McDonald and some others have come up with various calculations used on data. And they estimate that um, it's true that if you take 100 deaths following an event like a vaccine, what percent were caused by the vaccine versus is coincidental. Uh, they estimate that about 86% are causal. That's what their research suggested, 86%. So if you assume, let's assume only half of them are. Uh, here's the other thing. If events that occur after a, a, a treatment or a vaccine, if events that you're looking at, in this case, death, just dropping dead, if a death following something is random, or that is coincidental, it's not caused by it, the occurrence of these events, the deaths, should be statistically similar the first, second, 10th, 50, 30. In other words, the number of days from the vaccine should make no difference. It should be the same percent of deaths day one, day 10, day 30, day 40. Well, in the case of the deaths in the VAERS system, Dr. McCullough has provided data that says that, um, let's see, I think it's 50%, yeah, 50 of all those VAERS deaths are within 48 hours of the administration of the vaccine. And 85% are within one week. So that is a clear non-random distribution would not happen with coincidental occurrences. Well, and a lot of this, this is my next thing that I wanted to ask you to clarify for people, because I've had to learn a lot in looking at studies, because you can't just look at the headline or, or, the, or the title. Right. You can't just look at the introduction. You got to actually look at stuff yourself because of the way things are worded. Um, yes. But... When when they were when they studied the vaccines, a lot of the a lot of the times they didn't even take into account the people who their reactions until it was day seven or day fourteen or after they were right. vaccinated. That's in the clinical studies, and so and even when they're testing all these, so anything that happened within that time frame, between day zero of when you got the vaccine and fourteen or whatever, anything that happened in between, they're not counting that. Wouldn't that be the prime time for a vaccine reaction? Okay, and yes. then my next thing is. When you're looking at studies, can you talk about like the numbers, like how you can lie with statistics and skewing the numbers and things, but how I know in your PowerPoint, you start, you went over like absolute risk reduction versus yes. relative risk reduction, yes. because I think that's really important because yeah, that's me, like how they got the that. <laughs> yeah. Yes. That, that's a one slide. I, I, it's one of the most important things that I run into. And I'll be honest with you, I had to really, think, I mean, seriously, I'm not joking around. I had to really think through. Uh, mm -hmm. But here, the, all these, um, you hear the studies about how effective is the vaccines. And the people who are saying they're safe and effective, of course, are using what's called the relative risk reduction. Um, you can take the same data, and, these are, and they're both true, and you can look at it two different ways. Each one is actually correct. 
relative risk reductions used for the, the pharmaceutical companies tend to use it for reporting efficacy, which is statistically valid, but real world misleading. And I want to explain that. In Moderna's phase three trial, this is actually 50, there were 15,000 vaccinated and 15,000 unvaccinated subjects. Five vaccinated people acquired COVID compared to 90 among the unvaccinated during the period of the trial. That's a 94.4% relative risk reduction. So you, all you hear about is, quote, 95% effective. Well, that's very misleading. And how is it misleading? Follow this. What really matters to you as an individual is what degree of risk does it reduce your likelihood of getting an infection or dying from it compared to not taking the treatment. In the case of the uh, absolute risk reduction, and the CDC has a manual for professionals, and it states, quote, an absolute risk format should be used. This is the CDC's manual in my slide for more accurate portrayal of effectiveness, yet virtually all reports to the public for efficacy use the, the um, relative risk reduction because it makes it appear dramatically greater than it really is. And I'll show you what it means. Um, if you took those- that, Is that on the CDC or it said, what was the quote on the CDC? That whole thing you just CDC, said. The CDC quote, an absolute risk format should be used. Okay. In presenting okay. data on effectiveness of vaccines. Okay. But they never do that. Okay. Because it doesn't, because the relative risk reduction is what they always talk about. In their own manual for professionals, they say you should use absolute risk reduction to convey more accurately the risk to an individual. Okay. So and going back to the case, 15,000 each group, five vaccinated get COVID infection, um, only in 90 who did not get the vaccine got an infection, 94.4% relative risk reduction. However, what does that really mean in real world terms? You had um, the absolute risk reduction, five out of 15,000 is 0. 0.0003 versus 90 out of 15,000 is 0. 0.006 for the unvaccinated. The absolute risk reduction per 100, for every 100 people given a vaccine, you reduce the number of cases by six tenths of one, 0. 0.6. So in other words, 100 individuals receive the vaccine and 0.57 cases is prevented. So the, the 100 people have to take the risk of the vaccine, whatever the risk is, for one half person less to get a COVID infection in an age group where the risk of dying is, is well, the risk of surviving is 99.999%. So, it, 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 so to treat 100 people to present or 200 people to present one case of COVID means you've got to treat thousands of people to save a death. And Just, you're going to kill more people than you treat. And I this mean, was, was this study, Dr. Ravenel, on adults or was this one, this was because it wasn't tested on children. So this was on adults, right? This is even just for adults. Uh, and it's because it's Moderna. You know, this, right? is on Moderna this is on Moderna's phase three trial. Mm -hmm. And this is what, so we, we really should do a podcast called Just Do the Math, because at this point, mm -hmm. the math does not make sense to give someone the risk of a 
new technology, new vaccine, taking the risks that could be associated with that. We don't know what all those risks are. We do know the numbers of deaths that the CDC now concedes. There's not even a benefit. And now is there not, Dr. Ravenel, evidence that has come out during Omicron that suggested they were more at risk of getting COVID after a certain uh, time span after getting the being inoculated. Is that <laughs> yes, I think you're referring to, uh, <clears throat> there are two people who, well, Dr. Uh, uh, Geert van den Bosch, mm -hmm. who is a noted virologist uh, back a year ago or so, warned the world. He actually came out with a public warning and said that we need to stop the vaccine program because widespread implementation of a vaccine which has not completely stopped transmission or infection will end in inevitably put pressure to select out resistant variants. And in fact, most people who have studied it believe that in fact, that's what's happened. The Omicron variant, for example, was a result of the vaccine program, not the, the and the the same people who are pushing the vaccines are saying the solution to the variants is to get your vaccine. The vaccines what produce the variant, so they want to do the very thing that produced the problem already. Uh, it is literally insanity. It is, and it's the vaccine that is for the original. Wild tested, type yeah, tested out of the variant. variant. So Correct. it's like if we were taking the flu shot from 2016 or something. Exactly. That's exactly and the, right. and the CEO has already said that two doses, it offers limited, if any, protection. Correct. And Correct. a third one is just like reasonable. He said it's yeah. reasonable protection for yeah. hospitalization yeah. and death. For hospitalization and death. I mean, that's straight coming from him. Come Ooh. on, people. When right, you know now, better, you do better. Go ahead. Shifting, unless you wanted to talk, you, I'm, I'm sure I want you to talk any, anything you want to tell us, please do. Um, but can you tell us a little bit, or have you, uh, I'm sure you know, <laughs> about like what people are seeing, the trends, not only the adverse reaction to the vaccines, but like, you know, when we're talking about all-cause mortality or other diseases, I know you've specialized yeah. in in some autoimmune diseases and stuff like that. So what what are we seeing with trends like immune suppression and, and these type things? Are you Can you speak on that? Well, the, the, the articles that I'm seeing coming out, when you start, again, start looking at data and not what the experts agree or they believe, whatever. I don't care what, I don't care what I believe. I don't care what any other group of X percent of infectious disease people say, whatever. I don't care what they say any more than what I say. What I care about is what does the data show? And the data, when you look at the research, look at the science, um, not just what somebody says the science is, the actual numbers, uh, the all-cause mortality uh, is has leapt up. There are many reports now about uh, mortality in not even older age groups, which is substantially, almost unheard of, higher than it was prior to the pandemic. Um, and it cannot be attributed to the deaths of COVID. The numbers are dramatically exponentially larger. And so you have to look at the measures that have been used to deal with the pandemic themselves. Not only missed medical treatments, cancer, all these things, these things are obvious and self-evident, but um, that goes back to the whole thing about what is the impact of the, of the actual vaccine program itself on all-cause mortality. The other thing is that uh, the 
the mRNA vaccine technology has never been used before. It was tried on animals and over half the animals died from that. So uh, I just saw recently in a CDC piece reassuring the public that mRNA vaccines have been under development for 25 or 30 years and that it's safe and effective. And it's, it's hard to believe they would say that because the only trial of mRNA vaccines before in history stopped after half the animals died. Then they spend months, six months of data and authorize, not approve, a technology that killed half the animals the first time they tried it. And now they have uh, red flags in the VAERS system indicating more people have died following getting the vaccine in one year than died following all the other vaccines for the previous 10 years. And yet they're still saying it's safe and effective. It, it just it eludes um, rational. It, yeah. a rational thought. And, 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 yeah. and let's just remind everyone, the mRNA vaccine technology is being used by Pfizer and Moderna. Moderna had never posted not one profitable quarter in its 20 year history. It's never been a profitable company ever. Right. And yeah. Pfizer has been, was found guilty, has paid out the largest medical fraud case in history yes. because of its lying and covering up. And these are the two companies we're supposed to trust this new right. technology. Like it, again, nothing makes, this does not line up if you're thinking, it just doesn't and line then up. When the, and the final piece of the puzzle is that when Dr. Robert Malone, as you well know, who was one of those people who did the early research and is largely responsible for the existence of the mRNA technology himself has warned and come to the conclusion that this decision to implement the worldwide mRNA program is a total disaster and should be stopped now completely in all age groups. Right. That's right. Okay, can we, uh, shifting from this, but tying into vaccines and stuff, I want our listeners to know that you definitely have a, a history, not, it's not about your anti-vax at all. <laughs> Can you tell them your history? I mean, you know, just your journey sure. yeah, in medicine, okay. like how in your just think moment, yeah. what made you shift? Because I think that it would be so fascinating for everybody to hear. As a child, of course, I got all the vaccines that were recommended coming along in the 30s and 40s and 50s. And then going along further, uh, my father, who happened to be my, well, my father, who was a pediatrician with whom I practiced five years, he actually, in his own career, was instrumental in passing the first state law requiring a vaccine in the United States. It was polio vaccine in North Carolina back in the 50s. Um, so my heritage and my father and, and all that is certainly a uh, and, any, and and then I, my children, uh, uh, son, daughter, both had all the recommended vaccines coming along uh, over the years. So never in my life have I ever not only been or thought about being what's called anti-vaccine, um, but uh, when I ended up in academic medicine and then left academia to go back into practice and then ended up in integrated medicine, I happened to open my practice to children of uh, parents who had all kinds of complex things going on, autoimmune diseases. Um, I actually went to a conference in Chicago on autism and came back 
after crying most of three days, hearing stories of parents dealing heroically with these children who had all had all these problems. And I began to really, uh, because those parents, so many of them were convinced that their child's challenges or problems uh, onset seemed to follow getting a battery of vaccines, uh, that I began to study vaccines for the first time in my career intensively. And I probably studied 10 or 15,000 hours of about vaccines. Ended up writing a 24-page vaccine-informed consent summary about that. And what I realized was that uh, vaccines can be life-saving. There are many who have done that. Uh, I have never been anti-vaccine. I'm not anti-vaccine. But um, it's like if you believe that cars, uh, certain model cars, particularly dangerous, to say you're anti-car, if you uh, are concerned that the number of fatal accidents from a certain model or whatever has been extraordinarily high. It should be researched. That's what's done all the time. So uh, I do think that vaccine informed consent, not uninformed coercion, which is what we have with the case of the COVID vaccines, um, that that's really something that's vital, that people be given accurate information, uh, not be mandated, no medical treatment, especially anyone that's not FDA approved should ever be required to anybody. Uh, that's just not ethical. Uh, Dr. McCullough actually argues that it is unethical for a physician to even recommend that a patient take an investigation or treatment because you're talking about it's technically speaking, it's a drug trial and they're ethically bound to tell the patient that the uh, information is not sufficient to know the safety and danger Therefore, they're not ethically sh uh, should not ethically recommend it. Um, so, can I can we go back to just a, a little bit because obviously you worked as a pediatrician and you said you started working with kids who had these autoimmune situations more difficult yeah. is perhaps a treat. Um, at some point, though, you do retire, but then you don't really retire because you say, I'm going to go work in integrative medicine for six years. So clearly something was going on with you that said this old system isn't cutting it. I need to adopt and kind of move into integrative medicine to see if we can actually help these kids. What, yeah. what made you go, oh, I need to do that? Okay. Yeah, I did. I did. I, um, <clears throat> it probably started in about 2008, by which time I had become convinced at a common sense. I'm like a Columbo kind of detective guy, <laughs> simple-minded, <laughs> logical, rational uh, to a fault. But uh, I thought all these kids with this supposedly genetically transmitted brain-based affliction called ADD, ADHD, and blah, 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 I didn't, they didn't make any sense that pharmaceutical, uh, I didn't know how pharmaceutical could solve their problem, and it never did. It enabled them to do better, and uh, that was not questionable. But um, so anyway, I ended up co-authoring a book with John Roseman on ADD, the Disease of America's Children. Uh, and then from that point on, I never wrote a prescription again with a purpose for which to alter uh, a child's behavior or cognition and was able to find a variety of ways to help these kids deal with their challenges that could and may focus the problem and all that. And many, many things that can do that from nutritional to other natural approaches and all that. And so that became me, I became intrigued with the potential for non-pharmaceutical approaches to resolve a lot of chronic problems that really weren't being solved. So then I branched over and 
discovered the world of integrative medicine, which really is root cause medicine. Uh, mainstream medicine, our, our Western system, can certainly be justified as among the best in the world for a lot of different things, from accidents to surgery to uh, identifying things, tech, diagnostic technology. But in the case of chronic handicapping conditions, uh, mental health conditions, uh, autoimmune diseases, pharmaceuticals really don't resolve underlying issues. They just help make the patient uh, life uh, sustain the symptoms and, and make the symptoms better. So I was drawn to the root cause approach. And uh, my, I guess my most dramatic example is a child whose parent wanted to see if they could get their child off of Zoloft. They've been on Zoloft for five years for anxiety, crippling anxiety. And we quickly determined the child was gluten sensitive with a panel, gluten panel test, about 15 antibodies to gluten, gluten free. Two and a half years later, I never saw the child again. She was supposed to come back a month later. A year and a half later, two years later, came back. So whatever happened? Well, we went on gluten-free and uh, anxiety went away, stopped the Zoloft, and that was it. The end of it. I mean, so one good example. It's amazing. Well, so, uh, imagine that. Fix a problem instead of throw a Band-Aid on exactly. it. Exactly. And yes. cause more problems, right? Exactly. Yeah, I think everybody would really like to hear some of your suggestions for kids with focus. Uh, <laughs> I think yeah. There's a lot of listeners. They're like, wait a minute. Uh, don't yeah. speed past that. Yeah. Can we reverse? Let's go. Okay. Let's pause. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> so read John Rosen's books, first of all, and also the yes. one, Diseasing of America Children. Yes, yeah. I want to get that book. I saw it. There's nothing yeah. new under the sun. It's, uh, we wrote it in 2008, and everything's still valid. It's uh, Nothing changes as far as the importance of healthy lifestyle, living and nutrition and diet and all that. And it's called Diseasing of Disease, America's Children? The Diseasing of America's Children. Okay. okay. Mm. The Diseasing of America's Children. Yep. And John Rosemont, who is fantastic. You co-authored the book with him. Is that right? Yes. Yep. Okay. Now, here's what I want to say, because I know when we've, I've had a lot of people reach out to us about, because I have drop things in there when I've said my, I have a, a vaccine injured nephew. Um, my eyes were open to the current vaccine schedule when my sister Anna, who introduced me to you, Bose, Dr. Ravenel, um, she had a preemie born at Duke and the Duke doctor said, do not put him on the schedule. He's underweight. You do not want him on the vaccine schedule. She goes to Garner Pediatrics, a subsidiary of Raleigh Pediatrics, huge pediatric practice here takes him in and says, hey, here's my schedule. I want to put him on this vaccine schedule. And she says, we will not see you if you do not stick to the recommended CDC schedule. This, this, this female doctor there, I won't say her name yet. I might someday. But she said, <laughs> she said to my sister, but Anna goes, but, my, but they told me that there are risks involved for his weight. And she said, are you hanging out with people who think like that? Like she started... Program. Anna said it's from Duke. Like it's from Duke <laughs> University Hospital. They're saying I should not be on the schedule. I need to delay. They didn't even do his uh, circumcision. His he was four pounds. And she said, "Listen to me. There are no risks." This is a uh, pediatrician telling, angry at my sister, who was clueless at the time. By the way. Now, well, by like the way, I have to stop it, pause there. Yeah. And I will just make an observation. I don't know what the physician's thought was, but to suggest that 
any drug ever made has no risk is a false statement. There has never been a drug, a pharmaceutical, every pharmaceutical has risk. So I can't comprehend why a physician would make such a statement. Well, she, they hand you a piece of paper, which isn't the insert. So parents know this. You can get the insert for vaccines, but it is not what the doctor gives you. They give you a pamphlet, like a piece of paper that just says if your child has fevers and if you're, you know, yeah. there are risks. She's handing you the paper to tell you there are risks to giving this and you know, to inoculating that child. Yeah. So when that happened, though, uh, this is what happened in our lives. So it started my sister on a rabbit trail of trying to figure out why they cared if she stayed on schedule. She said, I wasn't saying let's not vaccinate. I was saying, let's not do it right now. What? And so yeah. that's when she started realizing these pediatricians get paid to do, they get paid to give, you know, to, to, to get, keep, their patients on schedule, right? There's some kind of payout. Is that correct still to this day? <laughs> Do you know? Is what correct? That they're getting paid, that, that, that there is a payout involved for the pediatricians by keeping well, yeah. their patients on schedule. Yeah, yeah. in my vaccine informed consent summary, I did include, there is, uh, this was several years ago, but I have a photo, a screenshot of a Blue Cross Blue Shield payment of I think $40,000 for a pediatric practice for uh, maintain, uh, reaching a uh, stipulated uh, vaccine uptake percentage in the practice. Yes, there are various financial incentives for uh, levels of vaccine uptake. That's correct. Okay, great. So this happened and Anna started researching and then started that let her down, we call it the rabbit hole, um, where she started to realize, oh, there are, there's a lot of questions around this. Now, remember, my son was born in 98. So that was the Jenny McCarthy era, era where she came out and said, vaccines caused <laughs> my son's autism. And she was completely raked over the coals for saying it. But that was in my head as I'm taking my child to the pediatrician at the time. And the studies came out, they said that they had studied it and there is no correlation between autism and vaccines. And they have said it so much that parents now, if you even say, well, I don't know that that's true, people have a visceral reaction often where they think that you are a crazy anti-vaxxer. And we have now turned that into a terrible term to make people think that they have no credibility and that they're complete idiots. But there is evidence, and I'd love for you to talk about this, that that's not a crazy theory. Can you tell more about that? Well, <laughs> it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a complicated and nuanced uh, phenomenon. But in the uh, history of vaccines and injuries and so on and so forth, there, first of all, there is a case of a person named Hannah Poling, the daughter of a Johns Hopkins neurologist, which happened to be where I trained. And that individual was, in fact, in the vaccine court, determined to have autism caused by a vaccine, but because of the presence of a mitochondrial disorder. In other words, uh, it was ruled the case was a case of autism following a vaccine. And the ruling was that the individual did have autism caused by the vaccine, triggered by the vaccine, but that it was because of the presence of a, a mitochondrial disorder. Mm -hmm. One has to under, so the obvious question then is what percent of 
babies that are born might have a mitochondrial disorder and it's not known and nobody knows the answer. Uh, but it's not a zero number. There are different, if you start tracking down the rabbit hole of, as a physician, uh, trying to determine what percent of all babies will prove be proven at some point to have a mitochondria. The mitochondria are the little tiny organelles in the cells that are responsible for producing a lot of the energy in the body and handling detoxing things. So if you have a mitochondrial injury, you're at more risk for all kinds of adverse reactions. Um, the second thing that people are shocked to learn is that um, so, some will say, well, do, do, do vaccines cause autism? Vaccines are not the cause of autism, but that's not the same as saying that vaccines cannot or don't have never contributed to the development of autism. And here's the main area. There's a published paper uh, by Dr. Mary Holland uh, in the literature. Again, it's data, it's not hearsay. And she analyzed uh, cases of autism uh, handled in the vaccine court through the federal compensation system court. And there were, I believe there were 33 cases of autism where they were um, put through the process and they tried to make a determination. And in these cases, they determined that the individuals involved, in fact, did have autism, but that the they, they used two different criteria. They determined what's called causation, step one. Then they made a determination of financial reward, step two. For causation, they ruled that in the, I think it was 33 cases, I think it was in PACE review, but they ruled that the individuals involved were, uh, they did have vaccine-caused neurological injury, encephalopathy. So they, they conceded that there was encephalopathy, brain damage from vaccines, but that was, that was the causal causation. But then for making the amount of the award that was given, they based that on what they call um, the financial part. And they ruled then that the result, that the encephalopathy ended up resulting in autism. And they awarded money based on the presence of autism in these individuals. So they basically concluded that the Vaccines caused encephalopathy, which then in turn led to the autism, and they granted the money based on the ultimate outcome of autism. But they maintained that the vaccines could not be considered to have caused the autism. It just caused the encephalopathy. Then cause the autism, right? Right. So, so, and that I think is important for people to know. If anyone, if you've ever shamed someone for saying, "No, I think there's a correlation." Here's the here's the data, as we've talked about the data yeah. that shows that. And then also, um, and, that is, they, and that does not mean, yeah, that does not mean that. Um, in my, you know, Dr. Paul Thomas is a pediatrician in Portland, Oregon. We've become, never met him personally, but we're friends. Uh, he wrote a book, which in my view is the classic book ever written on children and uh, uh, treatment. Uh, and it's called the Vaccine Friendly Plan. 
And what he did was he allowed parents in his practice for some years to determine they could get all the vaccines recommended, none of them, some of them, whatever. It was up to them, their choice. And then he just followed the outcomes. And then he compiled the data, again, the data, not opinion, data. And there happened to be a, a correlation where the least vaccinated groups uh, had the, the smallest degree of disease and illness. And the ones that did the best overall were the ones that had the least vaccines. And conversely, the ones that got the most vaccines had the most illnesses. Does that prove that vaccines cause illnesses? No, but uh, it, it speaks for itself. It's whatever the data says. It's, it's uh, interesting to know. Right? Of course, he has had his practice shut down or tried to because he dared to present actual data on outcomes. Um, so. And again, what did he have to gain? What did he have to gain right. by even releasing the data? He had everything to lose, as it turns he had out. Everything to lose, of course. Well, let's give another example. So, in the Vares Court, which, by the way, so in 1986 they passed the law. They say you can't. They, they will not hold these vac these uh, pharmaceutical companies liable for vaccine injury. It's going to go to the Vares Court, where we, the taxpayers, taxpayers are going to pay the families of those whose children are, are injured by vaccines. <clears throat> They've paid out billions of dollars since to a variety of families, and some have been those with autism. And But what was interesting about that to me was the pediatric neurologist who was testifying when some of these, um, some of these cases were going before the court, and it's a closed, it's, it's a statutory, right. they can't have it open for the public. Nobody can know what's happening inside. But the guy who was testifying as the expert witness for the federal government was a pediatric neurologist. And he is the reason why many families, they say, they believe they, they lost the cases due to his testimony. But he came out later and said, I told the federal government, some cases of autism are triggered by vaccines and they continued to cover it up. They promptly fired him. That's um, correct. He did, saying, he, did, he did make that testimony. And that's public record now. So, right. so again, if you're a person who has ever had a suspicion that there might be a correlation, go look for yourself. But if you're a person who has shamed anyone and you've just told what you've been told, you've just repeated what you were told by our federal government or by your pediatrician, this is the actual data that you need to be aware of. Well, and also, yeah, another another point in the pediatric world, and for us mamas who have had kids um, that you know we've raised in the past 10, 15 years, um, SIDS was a wor scary word that when I know when my firstborn, he's 13 now, but um, I think he had the crib bumper. But it was like after him, my second, I'm like, oh gosh, like I can't have anything in his crib, no bumpers, nothing, um, because these babies are dying because they're being put on their stomachs or they're being suffocated by a crib bumper or a stuffed animal or a blanket. So, you know, our kids slept with zero blankets on their backs, you know, all the things. Um, then to my absolute shock, when was it? Like when we talked to Dr. Cami Benton, mm -hmm. she told us a statistic about SIDS that, and I might get the number wrong, but 80 something percent of babies that died from SIDS died on the same day of vaccination? Within you know 48 hours? Uh, yeah. Or within 48 yeah. hours, okay. 
it's a similar clustering uh, regarding the the, the, the uh, time frame from vaccination, sort of like looking at the VAERS deaths after the COVID vaccine, same principle, clustering of the number closer to the time and all that, yeah. And then there was the Simpsonwood meetings that then came to light. There was a group of about 50 uh, members of the CDC and some evidence came out and this, they met, I don't, you would know better than I would, I'm sure, Dr. Avenel, but the, they convened because they realized they had a problem. Well, here, you're, you're talking about the Simpsonwood, Georgia. Yes. Uh, that's uh, a rabbit hole that anybody who wishes to can go down and uh, quite a number of labyrinths involved, but um, a CDC scientist, Dr. Uh, William Thompson, some years ago now, maybe 2014, uh, wanted to share testimony to a congressional committee investigating safety and so on, and, um, but he couldn't legally testify unless he was deposed. So now some like seven or eight years trying to get them to depose him, they would not depose him, so he could not testify legally. But what he the data he provided, there are about 10,000 pages that are actually available to the public now, um, are data. Uh, the CDC had performed a study to look at the question of whether uh, the vaccines used for recommended vaccines uh, might have a causal over in autism. And the study, in the study data they uh, originally compiled, there was a subset of the subjects, I believe it was the black population where there was a 3.4, there was a significant increase in the incidence of autism among those who received their MMR vaccine uh, before their, I think earlier in their life, like before the third birthday, it was about one year when it was normally given. So uh, once that data came out, they were going to publish their own study, but they met in Georgia in Simpsonwood and I would encourage people to, to start searching around, not with Google, because it won't lead anywhere, but use DuckDuckGo, which is free of uh, algorithms, and uh, look up Simpsonwood, Georgia. Uh, but in any case, the history is that they met together, the CDC leaders and Dr. Uh, Thompson and the head of the CDC at the time, and uh, so on, they met to discuss this, the problem of their data, and they ended up making a decision to uh, eliminate the group of kids in which the numbers were showing an increase of autism. And they came up with a justification, something about, I don't know what, kind of a shenanigan type way to get rid of data. And they, they literally trashed the data and they bought a garbage can and shredded all the documents. Uh, Dr. Dr. Thompson had retained his own copy later on um, Report to Dr. Po to Congressman Posey on a uh, investigating committee, and that it's never been um, he's never been deposed though. Uh, he was not allowed to legally could not testify to the committee without being deposed, and they were declined to depose him. Um, I'm I'm suspecting that uh, it seems quite probable that shall we say some commercial enter enterprises involved were uh, probably. Uh, um, encouraging people not to uh, do that. 
I mean, because it doesn't make sense. What do you have to hide? You know, we talk about transparency and I think when, not to get into the politics, but when Biden, the Biden administration was, we're gonna be transparent. We're gonna be transparent. Transparency builds trust. When you look like you're hiding something, then that's when people, so that's- Sadly, transparency in the political arena is a political term. (laughs) And it's, uh, it doesn't mean much. Um, I, think it's, I think it's important to note here that if anybody didn't pick up on it when he's talking about the subset, um, that medications and, and vaccines are processed differently in different ethnic groups and different um, populations. Yeah. So I think it's important for people to know that. And a lot of people don't know that. Um, like sometimes you have to change the dosing and yeah. there is a difference. Oh, I, be, I, I want to come back and also, one of you made a comment about the the VAERS system and the payouts that have been made. And so in these, uh, the vaccine system, which that Duke person famously said, there is no risk. Well, that's actually, it would be comical if it weren't so tragic. But um, the VAERS system, which they like to say it's safe and effective, the VAERS system in a process that is stacked against the petitioner takes an average of seven years to get through a claim for a vaccine injury. That system has paid out over, the last time I checked a few months ago, it was like, it was over $4.5 billion paid out in legal expenses and awards for damages in this quote, safe and effective system. Um, And that's in a system which reports arguably between one and 10% of all the actual adverse events. So, you know, again, just think, uh, if one to 10% of reports account for $4.5 billion conceded damages from vaccines in the VAERS system, um, then I think it's, it's not accurate to say it's unqualified, safe, and effective. So vaccines are clearly reasonable for various things, but the assumption that they're with no risk uh, it's just not inaccurate. Well, you mentioned that you were vaccinated and you, you, you mentioned there's a little bit of irony that you came to the conclusions later in your career when your father had helped really usher in the law here in North Carolina, yeah. that we must be vaccinated for polio. But, but my mom always likes to point out, yeah, but I had like five vaccines is what my mama says. I think I had like four, yeah. four vaccines. She said, now on the on the schedule right now, Dr. Ravenel, how many different shots is it that now is recommended? I, I, can't, I can't keep up with it now. I think it's yeah, 70, it's 70 plus 70 shots. 70 something, 70 something, 70 something actual agents actual. immunized, yeah. Yes, right. So that might be boosters included, right? So that's like- right. But but that's a whole lot going in a little child, and that's really by the what is I mean it's it's it that's a whole lot of going in there into those children. So now that we have sufficiently educated or given someone some people some things to think about when it comes to the vaccine schedule, what do you suggest? Let's go empower these parents right now to know what to do because it is overwhelming, terrifying. As Amy and Kristen and I have said to you before we feel like we, we we felt as mothers going in there going, I just don't have a good piece about this, but I don't really know what to do. What do you suggest to parents today to do? I, I recommend actually uh, for, for parents who are have concerns, um, ask their pediatrician, ask the rec- what they recommend, read it, study it, 
if somebody wants to read something which is free of commercial bias, I would recommend Dr. Paul Thomas's book, Vaccine-Friendly Plan. Highly recommend it. So for the, like my sister-in-law who, you know, I, I mentioned some things to her to look into. And then she said, well, I went to my pediatrician and he said he vaccinates all his kids and it's perfectly, it's perfectly fine. And that's, that proves nothing one way or the other. <laughs> well, and, and this is the thing, like when you say, I mean, it's great for you to say, ask your pediatrician, but they're every always going to have the same answer. They're, they're all going to have, well, not all. I mean, if they have a wonderful physician like you, or, you know, they're at an integrative medicine place or somewhere with a, with a physician that actually does just think or think outside the box or is open-minded and actually does listen to parents and their gut feeling. I mean, it, but most pediatricians and most moms are worried about the, the bullying from or the pressure or the coercion from the physicians. They're getting it. And so, like, uh, what makes you listen to someone more than not, you know, or, or if they come to it, like, I know the way I presented question? it, I said, I've been doing a lot of research. Like, I really want, as I actually told my, my doctor, I was like, I really want you to convince me that I'm wrong because I'm not liking what I'm seeing. And then she couldn't. And then she said she'd have the physician, it was the nurse practitioner. And then she, I never heard from them. <laughs> so all I said was, I'm going to decline. I'm not refusing. I said, I'm going to decline at this time until I do a little bit more research and until, you know, my doctor calls me and I learn a little bit more. And I did that, but I, we were right around the same time. We've mm -hmm. had two kids that are four months apart. So when I took my daughter for her five-year-old well check, you know, all she needed was some boosters, but I didn't ask the doctor to convince me, you know, if I was right or wrong. I said, can we go through each one and can you give me a risk benefit analysis of, okay, let's look at this rubella, for instance, she's five. What is the risk? What is the benefit? And then she was going on saying that, you know, rubella, if, if she's ever pregnant, could really harm, if she gets rubella while pregnant, it could harm her baby. And I'm like, well, okay, she's five. And <laughs> so I haven't really heard of many people getting, you know, I'm just, I'm not worried about that. And then I'm like, okay, what about this one? And she's like, oh, well, that's more like in the Middle East and it's transmitted through water. If you're, so if she's ever like in a swimming pool, you know, I mean, the, the, the risk benefits that she was giving, you know, that's just, maybe a piece of advice, you know, if you really did ask, can you tell me what is the risk versus what, it, what is the benefit for this particular vaccine and just see what they say and mm -hmm. see how you feel. Yeah. And, and yeah. parents also know in a lot of states, you do have exemptions. I think a lot of parents are, Dr. Ravenel, we were all under the assumption our kids couldn't go to school, couldn't go to public school if we didn't have them vaccinated. That's not true in the state of North Carolina. Um, so I think parents need to know that as well. Like we can take our autonomy back. We can take some of our power back here instead of delegating it to the systems, to the government, to our doctors, our physicians, our practitioners, we can take it back. They are our children and, yeah. and get right. educated and make the decisions that are best for our individual kid. Just like you pointed out, Dr. Ravenel, some kids are going to take these. We're never going to see any, any, anything bad happen. But there is going to be the one-offs. There are going to be things that happen that can happen. Right. So, so just getting educated, learning. And we there was a study done, I think, right, Dr. Ravenel, where they waited till like year three of a child's life to start. And they did better. Is that not right? They, they, That's correct. They tolerated things better. So <clears throat> it's just we want to give food for thought. And I, I, do want, I know we have to go, but I have to ask you this question, Dr. Ravenel, because when you said it, I could tell Amy, Kristen, and I all teared up when you said it. You said, you mama bears changed my life. You parents 
advocating for your kids changed my life. And it clearly redirected where you took your medical practice and how you were able to help people. But yes. I just, I just want to ask you, why, was there anything, is there an incident that came, comes to mind or any moment where these parents who are coming into your office and fighting for their kids were really made an impact on you? Yeah, it just, uh, what happened would be, uh, when I opened my practice, in all honesty, to the autism community, uh, I was totally unprepared to help them. I didn't know much what to do. And I went to Autism One one summer, came back, spent the entire time by myself, listening to stories, moved to tears most of the time, repeatedly, over and over again, hearing all these heroic stories where the parents were patronized, marginalized by the physicians, whatever, and all that. Uh, and then I came back a year later and, and was asked to speak. Um, and then I opened my practice to kids with autism problems. And um, the parents would come in and I, I learned, I got to know these kids. I fell in love. Fell in love. Mm. I got to know these kids and their parents. And um, I, my experience was that I would find there would be six or eight or 10 things that we might try and look at and find some things. And then more often than not, they would find things that would make them hit, they'd get better. They'd improve some. They weren't, from my perspective, quote, cured or whatever. Some actually got recovered. Um, but all of these parents, you would have thought I saved their life. And then over the five or six years I worked with them, the time I left, they would come in and they'd say, well, this is, um, this is our last visit, whatever. And they'd start crying. <laughs> to get me crying. We'd hold hands together, play together. We, we, we celebrated together. We cried together. Um, they just made me um, open to being real like I'd never been before in my life. Mm -hmm. And it was, um, to this day, there are many of them that I communicate with on Facebook friends and so on. Um, oh. And they would ask me questions. I mean, one, one, of them, one of them said, Dr. Avenel, have you heard of uh, someone named Annie Hopper about DNRS? I never heard of DNRS from Adam's house cat. I said, what? She said, DNRS. I said, well, what is it? And so I wrote it down. I go home and I learned about Annie Hopper in Canada who wrote a book called Dynamic Neural Retraining System, read the book, and then probably spent six months learning about DNRS, went to a conference, and then I had three patients that were chronically handicapped by auto, auto, autoimmune disease and the DRNS system home training for the parents was enabled the parent to get over the problem, to train the child, to get past it. So I learned repeatedly from parents. I just listened and they'd ask me questions and I would start looking through it, learning. And so that was, that's where it changed my life. It just, it just opened me to a dimension that I'd never known. So you didn't learn everything in medical school and then you were the expert and the parents didn't have a clue. <laughs> uh, I, learned, I learned from you, mama, mama bears and papa bears. That's where I learned. Uh, we all wish they don't make them like you anymore. I wish we had more uh, of you. I just was like, <laughs> couldn't he have been my pediatrician? I know. Uh, <laughs> oh, my God. oh, Dr. Ravenel, if only there were more like you. We just, we need them. We're craving it. America is craving this. A, a doctor that cares and listens and learns. Well, you know, that, that I'm glad you said that. That's what we have now mm -hmm. in the medical freedom movement. And yes. I'm yes. proud to say that in North Carolina, 
North Carolina Physicians for Freedom. It's not just physicians. We have physician members all over the state, uh, nurses, mama bears, papa bears, all welcome. And it's a community and uh, all helping one another, resources pointing to help for whatever kind of problems you're dealing with and all that. So um, it's it's just a beautiful thing what's happening. Can you tell us the website um, for people, for our listeners? We did have the Saunders on, uh, Dr. Wiggy on too, and they, they we were talking about that. But, and I think we did with Dr. Benton as well. Mm-hmm. But uh, if you can remind us the website it's name. NC, NCPFF, North Carolina Physicians for Freedom. You can actually, you can literally Google it and you'll find right. the website. Find yeah. It, yeah. yeah. And it's a can great we, resource too for just, again, finding these if you've been listening to us for any length of time, you know, we try to bring on these doctors from all over the country. Um, Dr. John Murphy in Arizona is another that really MDs that have switched over to more integrated medicine because they started yeah. listening and thinking and paying. And Cammie Benton, by the way, Cammie Benton and I uh, became friends when I accepted an invitation to go up, at, uh, volunteered to go up for the New York uh, Orthodox Jewish community to help them with dealing with vaccine mandates back a year and a half ago, maybe two years ago. And then about a month later, she went up and did the same thing to the same person. And she and I connected and we've been like soulmates ever since. Oh, we love love her. Her episode is one of our most listened to episodes. People are clamoring for this information. They just, they want to know the data. They want the data. So I have to ask you then before we get off, this was when they were having the, was this when they had the outbreak in the Jewish community and then they were getting villainized yeah. for doing it? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. But did anyone even die from the measles when that happened, when there was an outbreak? I don't think so. No, that's all. It's talk. <laughs> it's like everybody gets scared, but I'm like, well, so they got the measles and now yeah. they do have immunity. So the end. The end. Yeah, the end. <laughs> yeah actually there have been, as far as measles goes, uh, there have been I mean, I'm I'm thinking about five or six different measles outbreaks in 99 to 100 percent vaccinated populations. Yep. Uh, yeah. Measles. If you got measles as a child, you are immune. Period. Forever. Yep. The vaccine it just kind of postpones it a while. Didn't too much. Yeah. So I mean, it, again, I think there's just there's so much. We, we definitely opened up the rabbit hole for all of our listeners today. Yeah. Feel free to join us chasing down it, seeing what you find. Again, think for yourself. Uh, we don't yeah. care that you think what we think was it doesn't, we don't care. We all want the truth. That's where we're here. Exactly. We just want the yes. truth. So thank you, Dr. Ravenel. Oh my gosh, thank you, you so much. <laughs> we appreciate okay. you so much. Thanks for being on. We'll see you later. Okay.